Awesome. Thank you, Mike. And uh, thank you to the fine folks of the Lumen Christie Institute who are with us today. Uh, without them, we wouldn't be having this event or, you know, have this delicious lunch from Medici. So if you wouldn't mind joining me real quick and saying a quick thank you to the Lumen Christie Institute and all they have done for Catholics at Booth. Uh, the purpose of Catholics at Booth is to provide an opportunity for Catholic students to build community, deepen their faith through intellectual and spiritual formation, and increase awareness of the Catholic perspective on campus, which I hope we're doing here today. Uh, before we get started, we are recording today's discussion for a podcast. So as much as we can reduce the audio pollution that we produce in the terms of, you know, opening sandwiches, chip bags, carbonated beverages, if you haven't already, you know, I'll give you about 10 seconds to do that now. Thank you. I didn't pay you, but that was very well timed. All right. So without further ado, let me introduce the man who is the reason why we're all here, Luigi Zangales, born in Italy and a faculty member at the Booth School of Business since 1992. Luigi Zingales is the Robert C. McCormick Distinguished Service Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance and also a Charles M. Harper Faculty Fellow. Since 2015, he has directed the University of Chicago Stigler Center, which promotes and diffuses research on regulatory capture and how special interest groups exert pressure on capitalist systems. Zingales' research expertise includes corporate governance, financial development, political economy, and the economic effects of culture. So please join me in welcoming Luigi Zingales. Thank you very much for, for the invitation. Uh, as a preamble, I want to say I was raised in a very Catholic country by a very Catholic family. So I'm very Catholic by culture, uh, not as Catholic uh, religiously, but uh, so um, hopefully you accept me anyway. Um, and I think that uh, certainly I inherited a lot of the values that uh, uh, are in the Catholic education. And I think that uh, uh, what I want to discuss today is... Uh, uh, preemptively, I'm not an expert also about uh, uh, the Pope uh, thinking, but uh, I did read with attention the Economic and Pecuniarie Questiones, which is uh, this, this document uh, that is particularly directed to us. That's, that's what I thought was interesting. And uh, so the, the story, if you want to know the story, is that a professor in Italy who is a friend of mine said, oh, you should read this stuff because uh, it's relevant to what you're doing. And uh, if you don't mind, please actually write uh, a short piece for the Observatore Romano uh, on this issue. And so I ended up doing it. And so I ended up uh, learning more than uh, I would expect initially on the, on the issue. But one of the things I want to uh, underline is uh, um, how, to some extent, timely uh, this uh, document was because uh, it's really a, a timely uh, in general and uh, important for, for all of us because uh, it aims at the practice and theory of business uh, which uh, we all are studying, uh, teaching uh, and practicing and, uh, and you in particular will be practicing that uh, pretty soon. So I think that uh, this is not uh, another extra abstract uh, um, sort of general uh, uh, doctrinarian uh, discussion is something that refers very much to uh, what we learn and teach and practice every day. And so I think that uh, the idea of having a document on this is, is, is a, I think, very appropriate. And uh, the document has uh, some parts that are, I find very interesting, others that are, are not. And uh, uh, and I will say both, and then I want to extrapolate on what is my what I took from it and and uh, 
the, the short article you have seen translated is part of a longer article I wrote uh, in Italian, unfortunately, um, but trying to uh, bring some of these ideas into the framework that I use every day in economics. Now, as a preamble, I have to say, I read the first time, then yesterday I reread it in English to make sure that I could uh, use the proper terms. I read uh, the document in Italian, and it's a much better experience than reading it in English, uh, because uh, I don't know whether they use Google Translate or what, uh, but the English version is not exactly beautiful prose. Uh, let's put it this way. Um, but uh, uh, that's aside, I think there are some elements that I find uh, uh, very important, uh, maybe obvious, but they're useful to be repeated, and, and, uh, and as I will say in a second, they're obvious but not uh, obviously practiced. So uh, the first point is that uh, markets need uh, ethical foundation, that uh, they uh, don't work by themselves, so they need uh, both uh, regulation but also some uh, deeper uh, ultimate uh, value that cannot be given by the economic system itself. Now, uh, for probably most of you, is obvious. Uh, um, I think it should be obvious. I don't think it's necessarily uh, practiced in everyday life as obvious. So adding a reminder about this, I think, is, is the first a very important uh, step. Um, and the second point, which is uh, also pretty obvious, uh, at least in theory, but in practice is a bit less uh, easy to implement, is that uh, people's well-being is not just measured by monetary value or by GDP or by whatever. And, and I remember, actually, ages ago when I started teaching here at, at Booth, uh, my first uh, uh, analysis was an MPV analysis of uh, the decision of the students to uh, invest in an MBA. And uh, so the first time that I taught, I did uh, a strict uh, uh, cost-benefit analysis from a monetary point of view. And then, and this is the, the, the benefit of teaching to smart uh, students, is they make you think, is uh, uh, when I open up for question, people start to say, oh, wait, wait a minute, there are a lot of other costs that I suffer, especially when I was teaching downtown. Uh, people say, oh, angry spouse that I'm not at dinner at the right time is a cost, okay? A cost that uh, is completely stupid for us to ignore, but uh, is not easy to monetize. And, and so over the years, I learned to, to say, look, uh, these are the, the costs and these are the benefits. There are on the one side, there are the monetary one, on the other side, the non-monetary one. I'm going to do the analysis only in the monetary ones. Why? Because I can measure them properly. Uh, but please don't forget this other side. This, the, the way you should do is, is derive an MPV of the monetary cost and benefits and then do an introspective analysis of, say, is this monetary cost of benefits justifying the other side that I cannot quantify in an objective way, but individually, using your own utility, you can do very well. And so uh, you might make a uh, million dollars by making the MBA, but if that is uh, a disaster for your family, it might not be worth it. Uh, the other way around, you might not gain much financially, but if you value knowledge so much, that can give you a pleasure and you might do it anyways. But who am I to, to tell you whether you value knowledge or if your spouse is angry? I have no ability to add any value here. Uh, what I can add value is in this component, 
but please, please, please don't forget this other. Okay? And, and I think that that teaching has been useful for me over the years because I think all too often economics, we tend to ignore the other component. It's not that it's not there. So if you read all the Saka text, uh, Saka in economics, not in, in, in the religious term, uh, from Milton Friedman to Gary Becker to all these uh, great guys, they are very, very careful in telling you that utility is not just out of money. Okay, so, and when you say utility is not out of money, is much bigger than that, and there are all the uh, values that can be the family, can be uh, spiritual values, can be whatever you're going to put in that utility function. Okay? However, when it comes to applications, people basically dismiss them and then move on. And, and they never come back. In a sense, it's a bit like I was doing when I was teaching that particular class, that I was moving on. My only sort of, uh, uh, the, the only difference is that I was reminding people, uh, look, there is this part, please don't forget it. And I think that, uh, uh, what I'm trying to do today, and this is my extension of, of this document, but is trying to uh, actually mm, give a little step in implementing uh, some stuff uh, along those lines that might make a difference. Okay, so those, those two points are extremely important. And then there, there, is, there are some parts of the document uh, that uh, touches a lot of topics uh, that are uh, very dear to my heart. So um, maybe I read too much into the documents, but there is, in my view, a clear passage that says how much the power of large corporation is subverting uh, the system to the point that uh, even the political system cannot control it because those corporations are too powerful. So that's... Uh, is written among other things, is not written maybe in the clearest possible form, but it's a pretty powerful message coming from an organization that is not known to be subversive uh, as the Catholic Church. So I think that that's, that's pretty strong. Um, as there are some very strong words about uh, the lack of punishment uh, that uh, uh, follow the great financial crisis, this is, uh, uh, in case you don't know, but uh, uh, there are only two um, managers that went to jail after the great financial crisis. One is a poor uh, Asian-American uh, uh, owner of a small bank in New York that apparently went to jail by mistake. Um, and then there is a, a, a guy that uh, was uh, the head of Colonial Bank, which is a minor player in the entire thing. Everybody else got away, not with murder, because hopefully there were no others, but got away with a lot of money and no punishment. Uh, and, and that's pretty remarkable, given the, of course, financial disruption that the crisis uh, provoked, but also um, the precedent one. In, in, uh, when Enron and WorldCom collapsed, a lot of people went to jail. And... Uh, People uh, don't have uh, fun memories of George W. Bush, but George W. Bush at least did one thing right, which was to appoint Mueller. Now, if you sounds familiar, is the same Mueller of the investigation of Trump. He appointed Mueller to investigate Enron. Okay, and 
Enron were his personal friends. So Bush did something quite remarkable to distance himself and actually give to the tough guy in town the role of going after. And Mueller is literally an SOB that does his job fantastically well. So the way he actually framed uh, uh, the CEO of Enron is first went to the CFO, uh, and he realized that uh, the CFO was not cooperating, and then he realized the CFO had small kids, and so he went after the wife of the CFO for tax fraud. And so at some point, uh, the FASTO, that's the name, uh, faced the possibility of being both in jail and having their children given for, to foster care. Okay? In that situation, even if you're tough, you cave in. And they did. And that's the way he got uh, the CEO. So <clears throat> Obama, great Obama, he never put anybody of that caliber. Actually, he had more available. Did he put more going after the financiers? No. He put Eric Older that said we cannot indict people who are too big, too big to jail. And uh, basically nobody went to jail for a political decision. Not, not because there wasn't evidence. In fact, uh, my favorite thing is the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission uh, did a report and they released a report uh, several years later. In that report, they said that in their investigation, they refer seven people to the Attorney General for prosecution because in the analysis they found two, they said, find seven people that in their view committed crimes. And of these seven people, two were referred for two reasons. And they presented the list to the Attorney General and the Attorney General put it under the table and move on and did nothing on it. Why? My cynical interpretation is because some of these people were very powerful in the Democratic administration, and one was actually nothing short than Robert Rubin. Um, so I think that that's, that's an interesting uh, aside. But so I think that seeing uh, the, the Catholic Church asking for more justice on this front is extremely important, in my view, and, and valuable. Now, I have to say that uh, there are a couple of things that uh, I am less uh, excited about. Uh, one is, the, and, and I, having discussed once a paper by Cardinal Turks, and I, I have to point out that I think he's the source of all this, he tends to have a very negative view about anything that is in finance. And so, and going a lot with uh, the standard popular view so that uh, uh, CDSs are evil, uh, that uh, subprimes are evil, uh, basically every financial product is evil, speculation is evil, uh, all the stuff. And in, maybe I speak too much like a finance professor, but I think that uh, uh, clubbing together a very pointy argument to, uh, that has a lot of empirical facts supporting with a generic uh, criticism of everything together, uh, it detracts a bit uh, from uh, uh, the power that I will see in, in, the, uh, in the document. The second, which is uh, just a, a, a side issue, but uh, 
even if I'm not a, a practicing Catholic, I do follow uh, with interest uh, uh, the Vatican infighting, uh, which is uh, a sport now and then uh, as a lot of spectators. And, uh, and actually, by the way, uh, the, in the previous time that the Lumen Christi has had a um, meeting like this, I participate and I had the privilege of meeting not only Cardinal Tux, uh, Turkson, but also Monsignor Viganò, who is the one who is going after the Pope in a, in a major way. So that, that was an uh, uh, interesting factoid. Uh, so you should participate to get uh, a bit to see in uh, uh, first row this Vatican in, in fighting. But in the document, uh, it's pretty clear that there is a a very strong desire to make Pope Francis' position in line with the position of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Because every, everything, that, there are the footnotes to previous speeches of the Pope, why? To make sure that uh, the Pope appears not as a revolutionary radical, but as a continuation of uh, the doctrine, uh, uh, the social doctrine of the Church, which I think he is fully in that in that uh, thing, so I, I don't uh, uh, see that as a, as a negative. But I want you to point uh, to to see it because I think that's very important in in many dimensions. I also think that uh, is quite uh, bold uh, in the document to embrace uh, two uh, so ideas. Uh, one of which is very. Uh, popular politically, but not very popular in uh, academic circles, which is the importance of the separation between investment banking and commercial banking, uh, what we in the United States call uh, Glass-Steagall because uh, it was a law of the land between 1933 and 1999, and, um, and then was uh, reverted in 1999, and people, I think, still are demanding a reintroduction. And I think that the documents, document sorry, takes a very strong position in this favor. The second is um, the fact that uh, they recognize the power that we all have as consumers to choose with their, our wallet. And so the idea of boycotting uh, products that are not uh, obtained in the way we think is ethical or... Um, boycotting investments that we think are not of the proper type, or uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I think is a very powerful tool, and uh, a tool that uh, so far I've not seen the church, the Catholic church, using so massively. Uh, it could be, in a sense, revolutionary if they were to use it. Uh, the, the Catholic church has an enormous amount of following, and uh, uh, I don't think that uh, the Pope himself will start to, to uh, boycott, but if the church were somehow to converge on boycotting certain product or certain things, uh, that will have a dramatic impact on the economics uh, of production and so on and so forth. And, and in fact, I think my personal view is that uh, uh, the church not only has not done enough of that, has not done enough in-house. Because, and this is my um, upbringing in a uh, corrupt Italy, uh, where it, in uh, corrupt Italy brings a corrupt Rome and a corrupt church, uh, is uh, the, the church has not done enough to differentiate, distanciate themselves 
from all this corruption. In fact, they often collaborating with it. So when uh, we we see the documents like these documents, I think they are very helpful and very good. Um, and I would like, and that, that's the reason why I also like Pope Francis. I would like this document not to be just words, but actually practice. And where to practice it, if not first inside your house? Uh, you know the expression, "Doctor, cure yourself." And then, uh, as as a, if you value uh, uh, moral uh, uh, issues, you should uh, prove it in uh, the way you yourself act. And uh, and the church, especially in Italy, but throughout the world, is a very strong economic power. It's not only a moral authority or moral power, it's also an economic power. And they should use that economic power in, in a way that is consistent with their principle, setting the example for us to follow. I think that that would be a fantastic opportunity that I hope the church uh, will, uh, um, will take. Now, uh, in my so what uh, so this is the, the general overview of what I, I think about uh, this document. Uh, what is the part that I uh, attracted particular my interest is uh, that I've been doing some work about uh, uh, the issue of uh, what is the the purpose of a corporation. As you know, if you're a good uh, Chicago student, uh, this uh, literature was. Uh, basically turned upside down uh, in 1970 by a very sharp article written by Milton Friedman uh, that said, what is all this BS about corporate social responsibility? The only responsibility of business is to maximize profits. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, this is the, when, uh, the difference between good writers and sloppy writers. If you read Milton Friedman, he's very careful. And... Uh, People repeat the only, the, the only uh, social responsibility of, profits is, uh, of business is to maximize profits, but there is a comma and say, uh, as long as you follow uh, the norms, legal and moral norms of your society. Okay, so uh, it, there is a very strong qualification that very often people forget along the way, uh, but they are very important in shaping the debate. But... Uh, um, with, with a colleague at Harvard, Oliver Hart, uh, we look at this issue and say, um, on the one hand, his argument is extremely powerful because um, if you start a business, if you're an entrepreneur, you start a business, uh, do you have a more responsibility to maximize uh, or to care about uh, the society at large, etc.? If, if you don't have that moral responsibility as a single entrepreneur. Why do you have to do it when you are two or when you are three or you are five? So is the size that determine what is your responsibility? N not, not necessarily. So if we allow an individual to incorporate and not, uh, run a business in the way he or she desires, why we should not allow a group of individuals to do in the same way? And uh, that, that argument, in, in my view, is a very powerful argument and difficult to overturn when it comes to, to business. Everybody who wants, and you know, we might wish all of us to be better people, uh, and, uh, but uh, we don't demand everybody else to be uh, at the highest level of moral standards. 
And uh, if we don't demand from us, why we should demand from group of us? Uh, and why we should demand to cooperation? And uh, I think that uh, this is an argument that limits tremendously uh, some of the um, kind of desire to uh, see the business run differently. However, however, we realize that uh, there were two uh, weak points in the argument. One was not a weak point, it's just a, a, a choice that Milton Friedman made. Uh, the second was an assumption that I think he's nicked in very effectively, but uh, uh, is, uh, this is, uh, again, the, uh, uh, if you want, the ability of great writers. They sneak in an assumption you don't notice, but uh, if you notice the assumption, you realize actually uh, all the trick is in the assumption. So uh, what are the two steps? One is... Um, exactly what is in the uh, Vatican document. Uh, Milton Friedman says, oh, we think that shareholders mostly cares about monetary income. And he's very careful about saying mostly because he realizes in the, in the intellectual tradition of uh, neoclassical economics that there are other things that enter the utility function. Okay? But he says, oh, at the moment I'm going to just ignore the others and the focus mostly about uh, profits. Now, I posit that uh, it's not the case that people care, maybe mostly yes, but only certainly no about profits. Uh, certainly not in the choice of their profession. I chose to become a professor even if I could make more money in Wall Street because I, I like this kind of lifestyle and I like the freedom it gives me. Uh, and so I sacrifice monetary payoff uh, for something else. And am I stupid because I don't maximize monetary income? No, I have a different kind of utility. And a lot of people are like me. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of people are like me. And by the way, that's true of a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs want to make money, but it's not the only thing they care about. They care about a lot of other things including very often uh, their employees. One of the most uh, uh, sad stories of uh, the long-lasting crisis it hit Italy in the last 10 years is that uh, you see a lot of entrepreneurs committing suicide because they cannot pay their debt, but leaving their life insurance to pay for their employees. So that, that's kind of uh, the ultimate sign of how much you care about others that you give up your life, and, but you care to give them money uh, because you owe them money or because uh, they are part of your extended family and so on and so forth. So I think that uh, in many, many situations people um, care about things other than money. And then is the question is, if, if I am an entrepreneur, and I own 100% of my company, nobody prevents me to follow objectives that are different than just caring about money. However, the moment we get together and we create some large corporation that maybe they're traded in Wall Street, etc., then we basically ignore this and then say, the only thing you have to do is to maximize profits. Now, what is interesting is that Milton Friedman claims in his piece that this is without loss of generality. Why? Because he presents an example of saying, 
Look, uh, you can donate money at the corporate level. You can donate money at the individual level. Now, we prefer that the corporation maximize profits without making any donation, then give money to the individuals, and individuals donate the money on their own. And uh, this solution is brilliant. Why? Because, number one, solves the complicated aggregation problem of who should we give the money. Suppose we are a corporation, suppose all of us are equal shareholders in a corporation. And uh, some of us want to donate to um, environmental organization, others to people in Africa, third to uh, fighting malaria, and so on and so forth. So I think that uh, finding an agreement on that, those social decisions is extremely difficult. Um, agreeing on one single objective, which is to maximize profits, is actually relatively easy. So if we maximize profits and then we distribute, we have the cake and eat it too. That's a perfect solution. And that is the reason why Milton Friedman can so easily conclude that the only social responsibility of business is to maximize profits, and then the individuals can exert their free freedom of choice in allocating the money that they get in the best possible way. However, this perfect, what I call separation between business decision and uh, ethical decisions, if you want, or, or sort of a social uh, objective decision, is possible and is efficient only to the extent there is no inefficiency in the process. By and large, a corporation donating money can, can do that as effectively as an individual donating money. And if I first maximize the profits and then I distribute, and let's ignore taxes for a second, uh, I am neither a penny off nor a penny better than if the company had given the money and off the top of the maximized income and then distributed the money to me. And not only is not any better or worse, but the social aggregation problem makes the second solution, i.e. the one of distributing, much more effective than the first solution. However, in the real world, we have a lot of decisions that no, do not uh, have this characteristic. So think about uh, uh, the choice between polluting and not polluting. I can extract oil trying to minimize pollution at extraction. That will reduce my profits of X. Uh, and as a result, distribute less profits of dividends. Or I can uh, uh, sort of uh, do in the most wild way and distribute a lot of profits. Now, if I distribute more profits, my shareholders can, in principle, use that money to take care of the pollution. However, in most situations in the world, it's much cheaper to do the pollution control at the source rather than downstream. So I, I've done um, research about uh, DuPont and the pollution they cause in uh, the production of Teflon, you know, the non-stick pans. Uh, you know that 99.8% of all Americans have uh, PFOA, this toxic substance, in their blood as a result of the production of Teflon, okay, and some other military uses. 
and uh, and DuPont had a decision. They could spend money incinerating uh, this PFOA, that is the source of this pollution, or they could dump it in the Ohio River. Okay? Once you dump it in the Ohio River, undoing that is much, much more costly than incinerating it as source. So this idea of this separation does not hold. And so the principle of Friedman that the only social responsibility is to maximize profits does not hold in all those decisions that have these characteristics. Now, you say, okay, so what? Number one. And number two, so what in two sense? So what? Is it a big deal? And, and number two, what are the consequences? Actually, in principle, it can be a huge, huge deal. Uh, if I am the owner of a chemical company, I and I'm a Catholic uh, owner of a, uh, a company, I can choose not to invest my resources in producing better and more efficient abortion pills. Even if this is profit maximizing. Why? Because th that's my value and I don't believe doing that. Ironically, imagine the same corporation is owned 100% by Catholics, but in today's world, that corporation should maximize profits. So the individuals should suffer the consequences of a policy that is not in the interest of any of the shareholders. Why? Because the mandate of the company is to maximize profits. And if producing an abortion pill is profitable, I should produce an abortion pill as a manager, even if all my shareholders, and oh no, I'm taking this stream here, all my shareholders don't want to do that. So now people say, okay, but then what do you do next? And of course, we are opening a can of worms because Milton Friedman was very smart in trying to find that separation. That separation makes life extremely easy because it says, I don't care about anything else other than one thing, profits. I maximize it, and then you guys figure it out the political problem. Uh, in a world in which people care about something else, so uh, just to, to show that this is not just abstract thinking, a couple of years ago, uh, actually, I think it was a Catholic organization, a, an as association of uh, Irish nuns, uh, brought to the attention of uh, the board of uh, uh, Walmart a proposition that asked Walmart not to sell in their stores uh, the magazines of uh, high, uh, the, of basically machine guns. Okay, so uh, you know the Walmarts. There are not very many around here, but in the rest of the country, uh, they have a rack with all the guns you can imagine, including uh, basically the AK-47, whatever, the one that are mostly used in, in, in uh, uh, massacres because uh, they are very fast uh, in, in development. And they also sell uh, magazines that to, with the bullets uh, in case uh, you want to practice this stuff in your backyard. And, uh, and so this association... Uh, ask the board uh, to ban the sales of those uh, high-capacity magazines. Now, this was not a profit-maximizing choice. Uh, they make a lot of money out of that. It was an ethical choice. 
I don't want to uh, be involved in something like this. And notice, because there's a long literature on divestiture, where they say we divest from uh, sinful stock. And I think it's fine. If you're talking about Las Vegas prostitution houses, I understand. You don't want to have anything to do with it. You don't want to own it. That's fine. But when it comes to Walmart, or when it comes to energy company, it's not like if you divest from oil company, they're going to stop producing oil. Actually, if you divest from oil company, all the stock is going to be bought by the Koch brothers, and they're going to be run in a much worse way from the environment than they are today. So all the divestor campaign that you see around here, they are completely counterproductive, in my view. The real campaign is invest and engage. Do exactly like the nuns in the, in the Walmart case, in which they brought this to the attention. Now, the interesting thing about that episode is the SEC said that this was not a matter to be brought to shareholders' votes. The Walmart board was smarter than that and unilaterally decided to adopt that policy uh, because saw the writing on the wall. So this shows two things. Number one, these actions do have an impact. So don't feel like uh, the, the view, which is a very convenient field to view, is it doesn't matter. Whatever I do, it doesn't matter, so let's keep doing the way we used to do, because it doesn't matter. Okay, first of all, this is not a good Christian approach, but it's also not empirically sound approach, because if you participate, it does matter. So that's, uh, that's number one. Number two is regulation today is designed to make this difficult. Corporations are terrified to be confronted with people that say, actually, we want this business to be run differently. We want to prioritize, for example, giving health care to, to workers or give, doing this. Uh, but it's not obvious if you own the same principle I started at the beginning. It's if you own your small company, you can do whatever you want with that company. As a shareholder, why have not the right to say, I want to own stock in companies that don't pollute the environment or don't pollute above a certain level or, or in companies that don't sell guns to or uh, high uh, capacity guns around the world or, or something like that. I think this is completely in your uh, discretion and uh, uh, it can be done and uh, the last step is it should be done. And so what I'm working today on is trying to make it easier for people to recognize this. Now, I bet money that all of you today, either through your 401k or your personal account, own some mutual fund. But I will bet money that uh, uh, no more than three people, and I go like I'm generous because I think none, but they say no more than three people know how their fund vote in most of the issues that matter to you. Okay, so we have passive owners, and I put we because I am guilty number one, okay? So I'm not trying to uh, point fingers because I am, uh, why? In part because it's awfully difficult, okay? And, uh, and there are so many decisions that are so complicated, 
So what I would like to do is trying to help reduce the dimensionality of the problem and say, uh, do you care about the environment? Do you care about the power that uh, uh, the uh, corporations have in Washington? Do you care about uh, uh, certain type of pollution? Do you care about workers? Do you care? You, the, the dimension of caring are fortunately not that large. And then I say, given your preference on this, this is the record of the funds. And you know, guys, if you own the S&P 500 anyway, because hopefully most of you are indexed and most of you in, own some index fund, it doesn't make a difference uh, how you invest. It does make a difference how you vote. So my dream is to have an S&P 500 index, not that divests from stock X to stock Y, but that votes in this particular way, on that particular way, in stock X and stock Y. For example, funds that are very active against corruption or Western corporation in Africa. I think it is a disaster what we are doing with our corporation in that continent. Part of the reason why people are so poor in Africa, there's so much violence, there's so much underdevelopment, is because our corporations are bribing all the governments there, and they are competing who bribe us the most. And these are our company, the one that we give money to, the one we get money to, so basically we are leaving off blood money. But we don't want to know, we don't want to say. So I want to leave some time for questions, so I want to stop here with this uh, positive tone uh, and uh, uh, point out how important these issues are. I think that uh, uh, business schools, in particular this business school, trains you extremely well from a technical point of view, but it's very important to remember what the, this document say is economics is a mean, is not an end. Economics will never be able to give you an end. You have to choose what your end is, and religious might be one, it can be others, but it's very important to remember that we have to have one. And I love a, a, a phrase by Sartre, they say we are convicted to choose, because not choosing is choosing not to choose. And it's not just playing with the words, it's a very, very big message that when we claim to be our value, our non-involved, aseptical, our this, that in reality, what we're doing is just endorsing the status quo, is a very, uh, how do you call it uh, in, in English, Pontius Pilatus, is a way to wash your hands against moral responsibility. And uh, if there is one thing that my Catholic education taught me, is you cannot do that. Thank you.